Well, good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12. And I invite you to stand. We're going to read this together. And I'd like to pray for us. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. Lord, as we finish our summer study of the one another's in the New Testament, Lord, we pray that you would sharpen our understanding of what it means to love one another. I pray that the words we just read would be true of this community, the community we are today and the community we develop into in the years ahead. Lord, let our love be genuine. And would you even uh, help us to grow in that as we study this concept together this morning? Help us to be willing to love each other and to love our neighbor in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And we ask these things in Christ's great name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. As I mentioned, we are finishing up our study that we've been doing throughout the summer of the one another commands of the New Testament. And that paragraph we just read is actually a really nice summary of the whole series uh, many of the commands we've looked at are kind of mentioned explicitly there. The command to show hospitality, to love one another, to serve one another. Uh, others are kind of implied. And so you may look at that paragraph and think, well, why didn't we just do a sermon on that passage rather than a whole summer series? And part of the answer is there are, summer's long, and it'd be a, you know, like a really long sermon. Um, but the other thing is... There's value in really digging deep into these particular commands. I mean, if you think about it, you might ask the same question in a slightly different way. Why did God sprinkle these one another commands all throughout the New Testament in such varied ways? I mean, in, in one sense, if we are loving one another as believers, we will be on the path toward biblical community. If we get that right, other things should flow naturally from it. But as we all know, love is an abstract concept. It's a difficult idea. It can be defined in so many different ways, and it needs details and examples. It needs to be worked out in particular contexts to be especially effective. So how do you love someone who is faint-hearted? And we talked earlier in the summer about how you have to encourage that person. You're showing them love by being encouraging to them. How do you love someone who is steeped in sin? That's a different person, a different situation. You're going to love them through a different set of actions. You love them by restoring them gently and confronting their uh, unrighteousness, right? How do you love someone who has different convictions than you? Someone who kind of sees the application of the Bible in a different way than you do. Well, you do not judge them, but you accept them in the Lord. Love is the source of all of those actions, but it's going to play out differently in each situation. 
And yet love is foundational. It's, it's helpful to think of it kind of in relation to all these other commands. So I don't know if you've noticed the poster at the back of the room uh, with all the little circles on it. You don't have to go back and look at it now. We're going to throw it on the screen here. Uh, it, it gives us kind of a broad summary of the love one another or of the one another passages in the New Testament. So when you look at this, we got this from uh, charlies.com, by the way, a great website, a lot of great resources there. He does these visual theology uh, graphics where uh, he takes theological concepts and puts them into kind of infographics and different things. And uh, they can be really helpful. This one focuses on the one another passages in the New Testament. And a couple things about it that I think are neat to point out. Uh, one is the size of the circles are relative to the frequency of the command, right? So the more often the command appears in the New Testament, the larger the circle. Uh, the commands that only appear once in the New Testament are the smallest ones that are all the same size there at the bottom. So one thing you notice, the word love is uh, written in the largest font up at the top, and that's the biggest circle, right? So that's the point of that is to say that the command, love one another, which we're going to look at today, is the most frequently commanded one another in the New Testament. So it's, it's a big deal. It's, again, foundational to the rest. But the other thing he did that I really like is he, he overlapped the circles that are related. So there are some 40 or so different one another commands in the New Testament. We tried to aggregate some together and do a 12-sermon series to, to get as sort of broad a perspective as we could. But one thing you'll notice when you look at this is the circle for love one another actually encompasses all the rest. And I think that's a really nice representation of the, the, the point I'm trying to make, that if we love one another we will be living out the one another commands. And so there's this tension where there's value in looking at the specific details and the specific commands as we have throughout the summer, but we cannot obey those commands without obeying this one, right? So it wouldn't have been an, a, a full and effective series on the one another commands in the New Testament without spending some time talking about what it means to love one another. So today we're going to look at some of the many instances in the scriptures where believers are commanded to love one another. We're not going to stay in Romans 12. We're going to look at several different passages and just kind of survey this command as it appears in different places in the New Testament. And I want to see how those commands come together to guide us toward biblical community. And I want to center us around three basic points. I'll give them to you now. If you're taking notes, you can write these down and then we'll fill in a little bit beneath each heading. So our love for one another, according to these different commands in the New Testament, must be three things. It must, first of all, be defined by God. Then it must be demonstrated in our actions. And then it must be determined to persevere. Our love for one another should be defined by God, should be demonstrated in our actions, and should be determined to persevere. So that idea of being defined by God, I take from the language of 1 John chapter 4. So if you've got your Bible out, you can flip over to 1 John 4. And we're going to look at verses 7 through 12 to see where this idea of love comes from, how we are to think of biblical love. And we'll begin in verse 7, take a couple verses at a time here, where John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So John makes the, the simple but complex point that love is from God. It is defined by the person and character of God himself. Another way to think of that is to say that we are not free to reshape it 
or redraw the lines of love according to our own personal interests or the latest cultural trends. Love has been defined by God. It's, it's not an open response question for us to figure out in our own way. God has said, this is loving, this is not. And those lines and limitations that he has drawn are rooted in his character. They're rooted in his person. God is love, as John says. Then he goes on in verse 9 to show that God's love has been demonstrated in Christ. So in verse 9, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means something like sacrifice. Jesus died on our behalf and He he was a substitute for us. And so what John is saying there is, how do we know what love looks like? We look to Jesus. Jesus is the answer to defining what the love of God looks like. His actions in the world, and particularly His actions in dying on the cross. So Jesus showed us what love is like. Jesus showed us what love is by laying down His life for us. So that tells us that at the core of a, a true biblical concept of love is the whole idea of sacrifice. Anytime we are loving one another in a genuinely Christ-like way, we're going to be making some kind of sacrifice. It's going to cost us something. And that's important because of where John goes in the next verse. As he's talking about how God has defined love according to his person and character, and as he's talking about how God has demonstrated love in the death of Christ on the cross, he then says this, Beloved, this is verse 11, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So there's the command built on this understanding of love. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Your translation may say His love is completed in us. And that is kind of a strange phrase when you think about it. Uh, When you think about God's love being completed and our love for one another, we're a little bit hesitant to... Try to, try to understand exactly what that means because you're kind of tempted to, to think, well, if it's completed in us, it, does that mean there's something lacking in the love of God? Is there some sort of imperfection of it in some way that it needed to be perfected in how we treat one another? But John's going to go on in the same chapter to refer to the love of God as being perfect in and of itself. And so he's, he's not saying that God's love is in any way insufficient, but what he is saying is it does lack a local demonstration, right? That's the context of saying that we need to love one another. What's lacking is a local display. And so when we love one another, God's love is made known in our world, in a particular context. I think that's very important for understanding this command to love one another. Because if you think about it, just saying God is love is still a pretty abstract concept. And it's kind of a difficult idea to get your head around, particularly if you're hurting, if you're in a difficult situation, or if you're trying to explain the love of God to someone who's unfamiliar with the God of the Bible. I mean, God is love is a true statement. It's a statement we need to be proclaiming. But how, how do you explain that to a Moroccan Muslim living in Barcelona? 
right? I mean, you're going to need more than just this abstract idea to help them understand that. And John says part of how we close that gap is we love one another. And those people see us loving each other. And in our love, the presence of God is brought near to them. You see, they cannot see God. John says no one has ever seen God, but what they can see is us. They see you and I, and they see how we treat each other. And they come into our community, and they experience something unique. And they say, what in the world is going on here? You guys don't look the same. You're not from the same place. You don't vote the same. You're not of the same generation. You've got all these differences, and yet there's this thread tying you all together that you seem to genuinely love one another. What in the world is that about? And in that context, the, the love of God has been made manifest among them in the same kind of way that Christ's death on the cross manifested God's love. So that's one reason why these, lo- these commands are so important. Love is defined by God. We're trying to give an accurate representation of God in how we treat one another. So we have to think about the opposite. Uh, if we're not loving one another, if a Christian community is not defined by love, is defined by greed or strife or conflict or hypocrisy or selfishness, what is that saying about the God that that community claims to represent? And what kind of impact might that have on people around us? So love is defined by God, and part of our job is to demonstrate that locally, to give it a local display. And that brings us to the second point we're going to talk about, that our love must be demonstrated in our actions. And this is probably going to be on the same page of your Bible. We're just going to look back in 1 John chapter 3. Uh, beginning in verse 11, John is talking about love. He's going to eventually get to the command to love one another, but he's going to get at it by contrasting these two sets of actions, that of Cain, uh, who in Genesis famously murdered his brother Abel, and then that of Jesus, who laid down his life for us. So listen to John 3, beginning in verse 11. He says, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And so we, we know that. We've, we've heard that. We understand that command. But then he's going to unpack it a little bit. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So he's, he's talking that we shouldn't be like Cain. Cain is of the evil one. He murdered his brother and his actions manifested hate. And so instead we should be like Christ. And then he goes to that in verse 16. By this we know love that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So the call for us is to follow not the path of Cain, who in his selfishness and self-righteousness hated his brother and acted against him, but to follow the path of Christ, who in His love laid down His life for others. Uh, John Stott summarizes the difference like this. He says, Hate seeks the other person's harm, and takes action against them. That's what we see with Cain. Love seeks the other person's good and takes action for them. You're laying down your life on their behalf. 
but it requires action. And that's the main point of this section as we get to verse 17 there. John says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John's dealing with a harsh reality. It's real easy to say we love one another. It's real easy to throw that language around. It's real easy to get behind that idea. It's real hard to put it into practice on a daily basis, particularly when it involves acute sacrifices on your behalf, when you actually feel the laying down of your life for the sake of someone else. But I think that's part of the reason why these commands are situated in the context of local churches throughout the New Testament. You may have picked up on that as we've been doing this series. All these commands are given to Christians with the immediate application being the context of their local church. There's often overflow into loving your neighbor and and extending the command to them in some way, but the primary application is your local context. And so the church provides us a community for displaying biblical faithfulness and living out these commands. It also provides us a bit of a check because it's much easier to love in the abstract than it is to love real people. There was an article a few years ago that made this point really well. Uh, Russell Moore was commenting on an interview with a guy uh, who's a professor. I believe he's a professor at uh, Loyola, Chicago, which no one had ever heard of prior to uh, March Madness this year, except Laurel, who's an <laughs> alum. Um, but uh, I believe this guy was at uh, Loyola, Chicago. And he was a renowned expert on empathy. So he taught classes on empathy. He had written books on empathy. He was actually um, involved at the time in uh, some work in D.C. He was trying to help the Obama administration steer some policy toward empathy. And in the context of an interview, it came out that he had not spoken to his own brother in six years. So here's this guy who is an empathy expert, and yet he seemingly had was failing to extend that kind of empathy to his own flesh and blood brother. And, and Russell Moore, who's a pastor and the, the leader of something called the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, he wrote a, a really insightful article on it where he said, look, it, it'd be real easy to just look at that guy and write him off as a hypocrite. You know, he's telling us all how to be empathetic and he's not putting it into practice in his own life. But in reality, we should look at that guy and we should recognize what it reveals about the nature of our own hearts. That it's much easier to love a cause than to care for real people. This is how Russell Moore puts it. He says, it sure helps to love invisible people. He said, that's why one rattles on and on about the family. I'm going to do the air quote thing because that's how he has it. And I think it'll help make sense of it. Uh, That's why one rattles on and on about the family while neglecting his own kids. That's why one fights for social justice and tries to raise awareness about the poor yet judges his own friends on how trendy their clothes are. That's why one pontificates on the church while rolling his eyes at the people in his actual congregation. You see, it's real easy to get excited about those causes as long as they're distant and abstract. It's much more difficult to apply those ideas in real life. Russell Moore goes on. He says, The family never shows up unexpected for Thanksgiving or criticizes your spouse, or spills chocolate milk on your carpet. Only real families can do that. 
The poor don't show up drunk for the job interview you've scheduled or spend the money you've given them on a lottery ticket or tell you that they hate you. Only real poor people can do that. The church never votes down your position in a business meeting or puts on an embarrassingly bad Easter musical. I don't know who he's talking about. I've never seen that before in a church. This is all hypothetical. The church never asks you to help clean toilets for vacation Bible school next week. Only real churches can do that. Making a a similar point, C.S. Lewis once said, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. That's a harsh word, but it's a good reminder that when we talk about this idea of loving one another, we, we have to take it out of the clouds and we have to plant it here in our community. It's only as good as it actually leads you to take action this week among the people in this room and the community they represent. And if we fail, we need to remember the harsh words of 1 John in terms of what it says about the true nature of our heart. If you look over at 1 John 4, verse 20, John says, Now if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, by the way, he's talking about brother in Christ, like the family language of uh, fellow believers. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he should probably find a new church. That's not what he says. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, it's probably just his brother's fault for being really difficult. That's not what he says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John says, look, the problem's not in the people around you. The problem's not in the community God has placed you in. The problem is in your heart. If you claim to love God, that you can't follow his example and lay your life down to love the brothers and sisters God has put around you and not some abstract idea, not some cause that's distant and you you just execute support for by clicking like on Facebook and posting a couple articles and things like that. But, But real life, lay down your life sacrifice yourself, sacrifice your time, sacrifice your money, give energy you don't feel like you have for the sake of others. If you can't do that, you're lying about your love for God. It's a harsh, harsh word. But it again reminds us how integral to the Christian life this command is to love one another. Jesus said it would demonstrate our discipleship to him. In John 13, he said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how we show others whom we belong to. So love must be demonstrated in our actions. And then lastly, love must be determined to persevere. There there are several more of these commands to love one another in the New Testament. And many of them, as I was looking through them this week, the thing that kept coming out to me in the text was that many of them are modified by calls to authenticity and perseverance. I want to just read a a number of these to you. You can maybe just jot down the reference. We'll go back to Romans 12 first, verse 9 and 10. It says, let love be genuine. Do you hear that modifier? So he doesn't just tell us to love. He says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. In Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. Let it persevere. Let it endure. Similar ideas given in 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 3. Then 1 Timothy 1, 5, the aim of our charge is love, but not just any love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Again, those modifiers give shape to what this love should look like. And then 1 Peter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, that's the kind of love we should have, let us love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Similar idea in 2 Corinthians 6. So these commands exhort us to continue loving one another and to love each other with all sincerity. And here's the point. The presence of those modifiers, those little words that describe love, they warn us that it's possible for our so-called love for one another to be short-lived and empty. Right? Why do you say let love be genuine unless love can be inauthentic? Right? Why do you say let brotherly love continue unless there's some temptation to let it waver? and wax and wane over time. So the church that's passionately caring for one another one day can slowly drift away from faithfulness and sincerity begins to motivate actions. You start to just kind of go through the motions. I've got to do this thing because it's what I signed up for. They're expecting me to do this. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do it next year. I'm going to do it. And we're just doing the things that we've committed to do. We're fulfilling the actions And if someone were to just come into our midst, they could maybe watch things for a little bit and and see some loving actions. But the longer you're around, the longer you exist in the community, the longer you try to live life together and really function as a biblical community, the more difficult it is to maintain that kind of love. And so the apostles say, let brotherly love continue. So in one sense, I think this is a series we could return to every summer. I don't know about you, this is, it's been a good study for my own heart, just in terms of looking at these commands. There is, I only preached about two-thirds of the sermon, so I won't say this about all the guys that faithfully preached this summer, but of my sermons this summer, I told you nothing you didn't already know, right? That's, that's just a reality. Like there, there, there was nothing in this whole study that was sort of like innovative and new and like, well, oh my gosh, I, I didn't know we should be kind to each other. <laughs> We've been doing it wrong all this time. I thought we should be doing something else. Like we, these are things we know. Like intellectually, we know them, right? Um, and, and yet, you know, Peter in 1 Peter 1 uh, wrote a letter to a group of Christians who were, who were suffering, who were in, under persecution. And he said, I'm going to tell you things you already know. He says, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. I love that phrase. Um, That tells me that sometimes we just need to revisit things we know. Uh, We just need to hear some things that we've already heard before. We need to say some things out loud that we know how to say. And we need to pause and we need to kind of get out of the clouds and get away from the, the causes and the distant ideas and just kind of look each other in the face and go, are we really doing this stuff? Are we really loving one another? Are we really exhorting each other to faithfulness? Are we really showing hospitality to one another? Are we really practicing biblical community? So I'm going to pray for us in a moment, and I just want to invite you as we prepare for communion, particularly if you're a part of this church, just to take a few minutes to reflect on uh, the study this summer, uh, all the different things that we've talked about, the different commands that we've looked at, and, and really just ask the Lord to kind of sift through your own heart. If, if there are any of those ideas that you need to spend some more time processing through, that you need to, to make a turn to particularly apply in a new way, or, or maybe even just intensify the way you're doing it now. Like you're, you're kind of hospitable, or you're kind of encouraging. 
But maybe the Lord's just challenged you to, to step out in a, in a new way and become even more so uh, in order to, to honor Him in, in this place. I want to invite you to, to do that, just kind of process through the study this summer. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take communion together like we do every week. It'll be at the tables at the back of the room. And if you're among us this morning and, and you're following the Lord and you're trusting the gospel we've preached this morning, uh, we'd invite you to take communion with us as a celebration of his sacrifice. Uh, we, we do this uh, weekly here. And one of the things, uh, one of the values of doing it weekly is it really keeps that sacrifice of Jesus really at the center of our community. Right, so I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but like at the end of the service, the song's in, the, we say the benediction, and then we all kind of come together, and that's probably the most intensive moment of community of the week, right? I mean, we're enjoying each other, and, and you people linger and stay here forever. Even this summer when it was hot, you stayed here forever. Like, I just that blew my mind. I thought, man, as soon as we ring the bell, they're going to get out of here because um, it's so hot in here. And, but we love each other. We're experiencing community together, right? And, and we do it often in those kind of sacred moments after the service there. Um, but on the way to that, we, we stop at the table and we remind ourselves that, that, that this community is not centered on our mutual love of a particular football team. And it's not centered on our mutual background. It's not centered on our mutual vocation or any of the other kinds of things that might center any of the other communities you belong to. This community is centered on the cross of Christ. And so we go to the communion table each week uh, on our way to each other, uh, with some intentionality, just remembering that, that we're a cross-centered community. We're aiming to be centered on that, and that ought to shape those conversations, shouldn't it? If we're going through the cross of Jesus to that moment, it ought to shape the things we talk about, the way we talk, and, and certainly the way we treat one another. So I'm going to pray that we would continue to grow uh, as a biblical community. I mentioned if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to take communion. If, if you're with this morning as a guest and, and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, we'd actually ask you not to participate in this because for all the reasons I just said, it's a really sacred moment for us of, of really putting into action our faith. And so it, it just wouldn't be appropriate for you to feel like you need to go do that just to kind of fit in or anything like that. Uh, what would be most appropriate actually would just be for you to stay seated and just take this time and reflect on the things we've heard. Uh, th think about the love of Jesus displayed in his death for you, just like for us. And if, if you'd like to talk more about that, I'd certainly be glad to do that uh, when we're done. So let me pray for us, then we'll be done. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you that we do not, we do not walk into loving one another blindly. We don't try to... We don't have to figure out what love is. We don't have to figure out what it looks like. Um, you have rooted it in your character. You've demonstrated it in the cross. And, and now you've called us to put it into action, not just in the broad, abstract, general sense, but in the particular day-to-day, minute-to-minute realities of a church. Thank you for bringing us into this church and giving us opportunity to love these people, to love one another here. And I pray you will strengthen us to do that better and better in the days ahead. Pray even now as we reflect on this study that we've gone through throughout the summer and as each of us individually process through how your spirit might convict us or inspire us or, or encourage us in these moments, I pray that you would um, help us to focus on particular aspects of community that we may need to improve on 
that we may need to seek your help on, that we may need to, to focus our hearts on for a given season. And I want to pray that you'd send your spirit among us to, to continue the work of transformation and make us more like your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.